When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name is Jenna and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. Back for part two of our discussion on pure O and mental compulsions in OCD. So if this is somehow the first episode that you landed on, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to episode number 81, part one of this two-part episode, um, so that you can kind of get the context and have the foundation laid for what it is that we'll be talking about in this episode. So in this episode, I'm going to start right where we left off. Um, We're going to be talking about examples of mental compulsions. We're going to go over some potential quote-unquote justifications for mental compulsions, Um, meaning, you know, why do people do it in the first place? Because there's always a function behind what we do, right? Even if when we're not in that active anxiety spike, even when we've kind of let time pass and we've come out of it, we feel like, wow, that was so ridiculous. That went way too far. I didn't need to actually be doing that. That was stupid. Um, in the moment, of course, there's a, a function, uh, you know, a function of why we're doing what it is that we're doing because otherwise we wouldn't do it. So um, I think it's really important as we start to work to understand mental compulsions and as we start to work on uh, trying to identify and ultimately reduce and resist mental compulsions, it's really important to understand why we're doing them in the first place. Because as you'll see in the uh, rest of my talk today, we're going to go over why it's actually a process of kind of letting go. Um, And letting go means that we have to I think, debunk some of these quote-unquote justifications that we might have for mental compulsions. Um, I'm also going to touch a little bit on exposure and response prevention, um, some other ways that you can engage in ritual prevention when it comes to mental compulsions, and uh, this really awesome thing, this really awesome concept called non-engagement responses. So here we go. First things first, as we jump into examples of mental compulsions, I want to be really clear that it's absolutely impossible to create or give you guys a comprehensive, completely 100% thorough list. Because the reality is, even if I talk to you all about rumination, um, you know, mental reviewing, distracting, thought stopping, avoidance, whatever, right? Like there's probably one that I will miss. Um, And there's just so many. And I'm sure, you know, five years from now, there will be another one that comes to the surface. Not that people aren't experiencing it now, but we will just have had so many people come forward with it. We'll have had so many uh, patterns of this happening that suddenly we'll have a name for it. And then we'll be able to talk about it more. Um, 
So it's really impossible to really identify a, a complete 100% thorough like checklist, so to say, of mental compulsions. Um, but that's okay. We don't need one because they all serve the same function. So regardless of whether we're talking about rumination or um, mentally reviewing information or analyzing or self-assurance, they all serve the same function, which is reducing anxiety, solving some type of problem, making us feel better in the moment, even if in the long term that leads to catastrophic and long-term consequences. And it helps us, quote unquote, for the moment, not actually, but feel like we're answering some type of unanswerable question. So, you know, other clinicians out there will say rumination equals any type of mental engagement with a thought. So essentially, anytime you're mentally engaging with a thought, you are ruminating. So, you know, basically rumination could encompass a ton of different, more um, discrete and specific mental compulsions. You could also do the opposite, which is just really tease them all out, mental engagement, rumination, analyzing, um, whatever, right? Just don't get caught up in the semantics because at the end of the day, they serve the same function of reducing anxiety, trying to become certain about something, trying to solve some type of problem, trying to get you to feel better about something in the short term. So it's really important to understand what's the function of this behavior? Why am I doing it? Um, is it something that temporarily alleviates my anxiety? Am I doing it repetitively? Am I doing it out of distress, out of fear? Um, do I feel a sense of urgency to do this, this uh, behavior in my head? So if a behavior, regardless of whatever we want to call it semantically, if it kind of checks those boxes um, of you doing it in an urgent fashion, you doing it in a way that is being done to alleviate anxiety, that you feel like you can't resist it, it's likely a ritual. So moral of the story, don't be limited by the specific examples that you hear me talking about here because anything could be a ritual, okay? Thinking about bacon could be a ritual if you do it under the right circumstances. It does not matter. It does not matter. Um, so first things first, we obviously have the big one, which is rumination. So Dr. Michael Greenberg um, has really pioneered uh, this concept and taken it a step further with more rumination-focused exposure and response prevention. So um, according to Dr. Michael Greenberg's website, he does reference rumination being any kind of mental engagement with some type of problem. And he would say, according to his website, that that does also include mental review, analyzing, mental checking, visualizing, monitoring, and even the most subtle of them all, just directing attention toward the problem. So I think the most subtle of them all and often the one that is most difficult to relinquish for people is this just the ritual in and of itself of just directing attention toward the problem. Um, sometimes people get really tripped up between like an obsession versus a compulsion. And I think it boils down to this when you know, at what point am I aware of an intrusive thought? And at what point do I start to give attention to an intrusive thought, right? And, and Dr. Michael Greenberg would say that you could take that compulsively a step further and not only give attention to a thought, but also start to analyze it, which is clearly compulsive in nature. Um, then we have distraction. So when this is done to avoid a thought, um, it reinforces the fear that this thing that you were trying to get away from actually required a response in the first place. And therefore it's, it must be scary. So, um, 
Dr. Michael Greenberg in previous podcasts, um, not here, but on other podcasts that he's been on, um, I believe that he has differentiated between good distraction and bad distraction. So um, it's not about what it is that you're doing. I get questions all the time, like, is it okay to meditate? Is it okay to go running? Is it okay to listen to my favorite song? Um, and, and it doesn't matter what it is that you're doing. These things are not inherently good. They're not inherently bad. It's all about the functional analysis of why you're doing what you're doing. Are you meditating because you're so freaked out during work and you're afraid that you're going to get in trouble and you can't move forward with your day, so you have to go and meditate? Otherwise, something horrific is going to happen and you're not going to be able to handle that anxiety. That's more compulsive, right? Um, or are you meditating because you're, you're kind of having a good day? It's not really the best day, but... It just just makes you feel good. You don't have to do it, but you kind of just want to. They're two totally different energies, two totally different attitudes. Um, and so bad distraction would be, I don't want to cope with this anymore. I don't want these experiences anymore. I need to actively get away from that. You're giving your brain the message when you do that, that this experience and that this thing is threatening. So your brain is going to register to keep that in mind for next time um, and keep you scared and protecting yourself from that in the future, which is obviously what we don't want. Um, I would say, quote unquote, good distraction is more so like, well, I'm, I'm really freaked out about something that happened at work today and I'm really anxious about it, but I have a lot of stuff that I need to do and I'm not going to let that anxiety get in the way. So I'm going to forge ahead and I'm going to continue to do what it is that I needed to do. Um Two totally different attitudes there. But distraction, we don't want to do that. We don't want to avoid thoughts. We don't want to distract ourselves when we're anxious because that just gives our brain the message that this actually warranted a response in the first place, that it somehow was meaningful and significant. Along those lines, we also have thought suppression and avoidance. So this is more so along the lines of like the pink elephant um, situation. So for one minute, you know, stop everything that you're doing and don't think about a pink elephant. No matter what you're doing, do not think about a pink elephant. If you think about a pink elephant, something bad is going to happen. If you think about, about a, a, a pink elephant, you're going to have a bad rest of your day. Don't think about a pink elephant. That leads actually to a rebound effect, right? So it makes you have the thought more. Um, and research has shown several times that while everyone is uh, – kind of vulnerable to that rebound effect, people with OCD are even more vulnerable to it. So we don't want to engage in thought suppression. We don't want to avoid thoughts. We want to allow whatever happens to happen. And if anything, we want to lean into that thought. We want to egg on those anxious thoughts and those uncomfortable experiences. Then we have neutralizing. So when I think of neutralizing, I think of that almost like a battery, like that there's a positive side and a negative side. So um, I think of it as how sometimes people might have a, a bad or scary thought and they feel like they need to almost cancel that out or replace it with a good or positive thought. So it can be super obvious. So, you know, if you... Um, I worked with someone a long time ago who before they walked through door thresholds, they had to have a good thought. So if they happened to have a bad thought, which to them could be like death or blood, um, they would have to go back through that door and negate that bad thought with a good thought, say flower or rainbow or vacation or whatever that good thought might have been to them. can also be as kind of subtle um, or as... Uh, you know, connected as, as far as like, well, I'm dirty now, I'm just going to shower later, right? So 
kind of just neutralizing that contamination and that dirtiness that you got from those exposures, I'm just going to go shower later. Um, we don't want to do that. So mental checking or scanning, I see this a lot as far as people kind of checking how they feel. Um, a lot of times with individuals who struggle with not just right sensations, so they might scan their mental state or scan their body for any kind of off sensation or off feeling. Um a lot of times with just right, uh, people feel the need to kind of feel a certain way before they can do X, Y, and Z, um, especially working in the adult OCD and anxiety residential recovery center. Um, cannot tell you how many times people would just stay in bed because, you know, they would wake up and they didn't feel right. So they had to go back to bed, sleep, and every time they would wake up again, it would be this thing. Like I'm scanning my body. I'm checking to make sure I, I can't move forward until I feel a certain way. Self-assurance is also no no good. Um, this serves the same purpose as reassurance seeking as if you were getting that from some other person. So telling yourself things like, I'm good, this is fine, no big deal, or no, I love my partner, I love my partner no matter what my OCD says, I love my partner. Um, this is not the same as like positive self-talk or um, like giving yourself compassion, right? So I think of self-compassion, that's a good thing. We want people to be compassionate with themselves without giving themselves self-assurance. So self-compassion is about the person. It's about you and your experience. Self-assurance is about things that you can't prove, right? So self-assurance is often about that object or that experience or whether that thing is dirty. Self-compassion is I'm working really hard right now and I'm doing the best that I possibly can. Um, Self-assurance says that that's not dirty. Someone else already touched it. Well, we don't know that. <laughs> we don't know that. We can't be 100% sure. Um, so it, it's subtle and it can trip people up sometimes, but it's important to witness the differences there. Um, I've gone over in numerous podcast episodes before why it's not good to challenge thoughts, why it's not good um, for exposure and response prevention or for OCD treatment to kind of collect evidence for why fears won't happen. So um, obviously in cognitive behavioral therapy, thought challenging and going over cognitive distortions and kind of coming back to a more balanced way of thinking is a specified intervention that you might do. With OCD, however, that can quickly become reassurance. So it's really important to either just stay away from this altogether or use it very sparingly. Um, my tactic when it comes to challenging thoughts is I try to come at it from a more educational standpoint. So I try to, you know, let my members know that these are the tricks that OCD could play. OCD is very good at uh, making you think of things in terms of black or white, um, kind of all or nothing. OCD is very good at over-predicting the negative and catastrophizing and overestimating the probability of something bad happening. I think you can educate people about the tricks that their mind might play on them without actively, as an intervention, going through that. And actively decreasing their anxiety, right? So I think it's really important to educate individuals about the different tricks that OCD in their mind can play on them without actively bringing this up as an intervention, because we don't want this intervention to be something that they come back to and that they rely on ritualistically to feel better. Um, I've worked with a lot of people too who kind of keep track or keep a history of information. So uh, they might commit ritualistically information to memory. They might rehearse certain things. Uh, so for instance, with contamination, 
oh yeah, I can, I can touch anything. Uh, or my husband can touch everything because I'm just watching everything that he touches so that I know I don't have to touch that stuff. Um, that obviously negates the purpose, right? So, um, if you're just keeping track or keeping history of what everyone else has touched, that's really immensely exhausting. It's not going to be a sustainable or really fulfilling way to live. Um, and it's, it's just replacing one ritual with the other. Um, a couple more here. So we have counting is a big one, right? So just counting or having to follow a certain sequence while you're doing another behavior like ceiling tiles or steps or while you're washing your hands. Um, one of my favorite uh, kind of like stepping stones as an intervention for counting is to have people count backwards or to just randomly say uh, numbers or to say the alphabet or to sing the Star Spangled Banner. Um, it's not ideal. And obviously the goal there isn't to then do the Star Spangled Banner while you walk down the stairs in a compulsive way. But it is enough I've seen to kind of fluster the OCD's feathers a little bit. Um, and that's what we need. That's kind of what we're looking for, especially in the beginning of treatment, just to fluster its feathers a little bit. I also have a lot of people who kind of monitor or stay on guard. So they're guarding themselves. They're just overall really vigilant, kind of being careful or tentative with certain things, like maybe their speech. Um, so depending on what their core fears might be, if, if someone's really afraid of blurting out um, blasphemous thoughts, or if they're afraid of saying inappropriate statements or... Um, you know, if they're afraid of just offending someone, you might find that they're just very quiet, right? Like they're just very on guard and they're very tentative with what they're saying. Um, similarly, if someone's very uh, fearful of contamination or being around other people, you might find themselves as far as their body language. They're very cringed up into themselves, almost like protecting themselves and trying to uh, make sure that nothing ever touches them at any time. We also have analyzing, which I don't know is too, too different from rumination functionally, uh, but I think of analyzing as where you're really trying to thoroughly understand something that either can't or doesn't need to be understood, right? So I think of unanswerable questions going down the rabbit hole with um, more existential or philosophical types of thought. Um, maybe some scrupulosity type things in here, maybe some moral content as well. So really just mentally going through specific details of stuff and really spending an inordinate amount of time um, on trying to answer a question and become more certain about something that they can't answer or become certain about. Um, and of course, as we know, doing these compulsions just makes them all the more anxious, makes them all the more uncertain, and makes them way more depressed. So essentially here with analyzing, I usually try to just identify for people, you're getting lost in the trees and you're forgetting about the forest, right? So you're getting lost in the trees of this assignment, uh, trying to analyze and understand every teeny tiny little piece of uh, this book chapter, but you're forgetting the forest, right? Like you're forgetting that we have a whole entire semester here of assignments and we can't we can't spend such an inordinate amount of time analyzing this example here because we're going to get lost in the trees and ultimately forget about the big picture. Um, and then finally, we have mental review. Uh, so I think of this in terms of mentally kind of reviewing previous situations like hit and run um, OCD. So if someone has hit and run OCD, they'll often feel like maybe they hit someone or something on accident. Um, 
and that they've now, you know, committed this grave hit and run, so on and so forth. And so they might find themselves reviewing the drive, reviewing what it felt like in the car, reviewing um, what it sounded like, or, or did anybody else seem alarmed while they were driving? Can also happen in social situations. So reviewing someone else's uh, behavior or the memory of their behavior, kind of if they acted offended or if if you said something in a way uh, that could have been taken wrong. Um, or just kind of how you left the house, right? So did I check everything? Did I get the stove? Did I turn off all the all the electronics? So on and so forth. And again, that's not a 100% comprehensive list. I'm sure someone out there is like, well, what about this one? Um, if you didn't hear me specifically identify your mental compulsion or your behavior that you're struggling with, it doesn't mean that you don't necessarily have OCD. And it's fine. Um, I'm sure there are tons of other people out there who struggle similarly to you. Um, it's more about the function, like we've said. So the function of mental compulsions, again, they they it might not be the obvious um, outside of our anxiety moments, uh, but in the moment, there are certainly functions. There are reasons why we feel continually pulled back to these behaviors, no matter how distressing and impairing they might be. Um, so first things first, they... They don't actually, but they make us feel as though they're going to solve a problem, right? That that as long as we do this information, as long as we compulse over this, as long as we continue to review, or as long as we continue to to do this, um, I will get closer to figuring this thing out. Um, so if I just keep thinking about this a little bit more, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. Uh, if that's how you feel in those moments, I would definitely challenge. The evidence, right? Like, how are you feeling? Are you actually getting any closer to ever figuring anything out? Uh, because research shows that as we engage in more ruminative behaviors, uh, we actually get way more confused. We get way more depressed, way more anxious, and way less confident in our problem-solving abilities. So I think that's really important too. I think it also just feels like it's going to make us feel better, right? Like, I have to keep thinking about this, otherwise I'll feel awful. And again, I would work to debunk that. Does it actually make you feel better? I know it feels like it will right now in the short term. And I know as humans, we are geared towards um, short term gains over the long term. But does it actually make you feel better? We're going to have to let go of that one. Um, a lot of times people will say that it just, it gets me closer to knowing or it gets me closer to certainty. Um, I need to know, like they want that golden moment where like golden rays come down from the sky and a lightning bolt strikes through them and they're met with this just gleeful, like all encompassing satisfactory feeling of certainty. Like that they've, they, okay, I got it. I got it. That's everything that I needed to know. I'm good now. And that's never going to happen with OCD, right? That's never going to happen in life. We're never going to get that. And even if someone with OCD could very well say, well, oh yeah, I would feel that way if this happened. Would you really? Would you really feel that way forever? Like, or, would that really close the book? Or would you soon start to doubt that even afterwards? Would you maybe start to doubt something else completely unrelated? Because the reality is, is that there's always more but what ifs when it comes to OCD. There's always more but what ifs than there are logical reasonings or facts, right? So OCD is always going to come back at you with that but what if. Um, 
we also, I think, tend to think sometimes that it can prevent something bad from happening, right? Like if I think about all of these things, then I'll somehow be more prepared when and if something bad happens and I'll just have all my bases covered. And I think of this as, you know, someone wanting to operate at 90 so that the jump from 90 to 100 isn't so terrible and jarring versus being at like 10. And then if if shit hits the fan, sorry if we have little ones listening, if crap hits the fan, um, then that jump from like 10 to 100 is going to be really uncomfortable. But the reality is it's uncomfortable living at 90 all these times, right? Like living at 90 is not sustainable. Living at 90 is not a way that we can continue to function. Um, And so, yes, I've been there before myself with various child-related things. And it's like, I just feel like I need to be on guard. I feel like I just need to be ready in case something bad happens. And the reality is bad things happen. A lot of times bad things don't happen. And I don't need to be operating at that 90% level. So I think it's really important overall to kind of discuss this with your therapist, um, to ask yourself about it, and overall to do a really thorough, what we call functional analysis. So a functional analysis really gets to why, like, why are you doing that? Why? Why? What's the function of that behavior? Um, And can be different for everyone, can be a little bit different depending on what your intrusive thoughts are or what your core fears are. So um, asking yourself, why am I doing that? What do I think is going to come of that? So Um, we're going to pause here for a quick break and then we'll be back after, uh, some announcements and we'll talk a little bit more about exposure and response prevention and how you guys can start to reduce and, and resist some of these tricky compulsions. If you or anyone you know is struggling with obsessive compulsive disorder or related conditions like skin picking, hair pulling, hoarding, tick disorders, or other body-focused repetitive behaviors, check out NoCD. NoCD is an online teletherapy platform offering specialized services and evidence-based treatments for obsessive-compulsive disorder and related difficulties. You can meet with a therapist who specializes in your unique concerns and also get between-session support through messaging. We take insurance and also offer payment plans for those who self-pay. Available now in and out of the United States, check us out at www.nocd.com to get started. You can also download our free mobile app, which includes free therapy tools, an in-app community, and so much more. Know you are not alone and go to www.nocd.com or download the Treat My OCD app on your phone to see how so many others are overcoming their OCD. You've got this. Alrighty, we are back. Now, back to talking about kind of how do we move forward with these concepts, right? So we know what maybe are some compulsions that you've been doing. Okay, what do we do about it? Um, Just to give you all some examples of what I do as a clinician, so as a therapist, how I would walk someone through this. uh, First and foremost, I think it's really crucial to hit hard the psychoeducation. So um, especially with mental compulsions, I think it's really important to identify the OCD cycle, um, which you can find more thoroughly in a different podcast episode. I think it's really important to go over other examples of mental compulsions to help someone iron out what they're doing. Um, Likely some other ones are going on than just the ones that they're aware of. And I would also really, you know, drive home this idea that 
mental compulsions work just like physical compulsions. They reinforce threat. They reinforce your obsession for next time. Um, because again, your OCD doesn't know uh, that, or your brain, sorry, your brain doesn't know that you have OCD. Your brain only recognizes how you act and how you don't act. So then it makes assumptions based on whether you act or don't act based on kind of, okay, it interprets what's dangerous from there. So it only really keeps a record of how you behave or don't behave. Um it's really important to, to help you guys identify an obsession versus a compulsion. And so as I've mentioned earlier, awareness is great. We want you to be aware of your thoughts. We want you to be aware. Yep. Let them come, let them go. Kind of just like any other random thought um, that's kind of meaningless and that we don't need to attach any attention to. Attention is not okay. Um, attention is really honing in on that thought, making it the center of your awareness um, for a prolonged period of time, really honing in on it analysis is also not okay. So really strategizing with that thought, further trying to understand that thought and make sense of it and um, answer that thought's questions. Having a question is okay. Answering it is not. Um, so I would also challenge my members to be vigilant for these mental compulsions, to try to take a bird's eye view of their OCD, to try to really abstract out instead of just being so automatic pilot and kind of in the zone of just doing, doing, doing. And, um, behaving mentally the way that they've always behaved, try to be vigilant for when that question pops up. Anything after that questioning popping up, any attempt at you trying to answer it is potentially compulsive. I would also want people to try to change their frame of reference from an automatic ref, uh, to a, from automatic to habitual. So I would really want people to drop as soon as possible and just reorganize their understanding of them thinking that mental compulsions are automatic. So I always say, Breathing is automatic. Blinking is automatic. Um, your heartbeat is automatic. Everything else is habitual when it comes to mental compulsions, right? So um, roses are red, violets are... I'm, I didn't have to force any of you to think of blue. It just was automatic. Now, anything that were to come after that, if you started to really draw attention to that or if you started to analyze that in any way that would be a habit. That's not automatic. You would actually have to exert some type of strategy or some level of mental effort and a mental exertion into trying to figure that out. Um, it's really important to try to just get your foot in there into that small moment of time, like this little fork in the road that I just had an intrusive thought. I just had an intrusive urge or experience or whatever it is. And this can go one of two ways. I can either submit to my ritual and I can give into that and make the OCD stronger, or I can choose to let go of it despite any of the justifications that I have. And it's hard to let go of those justifications. Everything in your body is going to be telling you not to do uh, response prevention because you've been training it this whole time to be scared of this thing. So your brain's not going to hop on board and be ready ready to kind of just relinquish that and treat it as though it's fine because you've been telling it that it's not fine. Um, so it's going to take some time for your brain to kind of catch up. Um, I would also ask people, this is something where if I'm running into someone who's being a little bit stubborn, um, you know, knowingly or not, obviously with the best of intentions, um, if they're really struggling, like I can't stop ruminating, I can't stop doing these mental compulsions. Um, I normally will ask them a question like, if I gave you a million dollars to, you know, not review, you know, whether you 
locked everything in your house before you left it. If I gave you $10 million, would you be able to resist that ritual? And they're usually like, yeah, probably, probably. Um, And they can at least start to visualize like what that life would look like or what it would require of them in order to have to do that. Um, I don't like doing this alternate uh, question, but I will, especially if someone's not as motivated by money or if they answer no to that question, I'll say, okay, what if I held a gun to your kid's head? Or what if I held a gun to your puppy's head? And I know probably some people out there won't like that, but if I held a gun to your kid's head or to your dog's head, and I told you that you have to resist reviewing uh, your drive home and that you need to sit with the uncertainty that maybe you could have killed someone or not, would you be able to do it? And and nine times out of 10, probably even more than that, like 95 times out of 100, someone says, yeah, I could. Um, sometimes people say no, and we have to do some more work, but it's really, really important to get the person to the point where they recognize their agency in this. And because if they don't, this isn't going to be as effective. And again, I think it just comes down to helping identify the person's justifications for mental compulsion. So really further identifying why these compulsions don't work for them, um, that it really, it feels like it makes you feel better, but it doesn't. Uh, so really just encouraging them to get into the habit of talking their way out of a ritual versus into it. So we, I've worked a lot with people who kind of want to justify a ritual and talk their way into it and find all these reasons why it made sense for them to do this ritual. And it's like, why are you talking your way into a ritual? Your job is to talk yourself out of this ritual. Your job is to get as far away from this ritual as possible. Um, so I think sometimes people also get stuck in the mud asking themselves like, well, is this normal? Would other people do this? Um, even if they didn't have OCD. And I'm like, eh. I don't want you answering or asking yourself that question because we're never going to know what's normal for other people. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what other people would do. I want I want you to do what's good for your treatment. I want you to do what you and I have collaborated on and what we've decided is good for you to do um, because you have OCD. And the reality is, is that you're engaging in a treatment, whether that's formally with a therapist or you're just trying the best that you can with these self-identified skills online you're doing things that are not normal. <laughs> you're you're going against the grain already by having this disorder and by doing this treatment. You have to do things that are not normal sometimes. You just have to. Um, so don't worry necessarily about other people or comparing what you're doing to what other people are doing. It's not about other people. It's about you and it's about what's good for your treatment. Um, so obviously when we're talking about treatment, we're talking about the gold standard uh, for obsessive compulsive disorder and related conditions and also other anxiety disorders, and that's exposure and response prevention. So we see OCD as a two-part problem with obsessions and compulsions, and so we really apply a two-part solution to that. So we do exposures, and then we do response prevention. So for those of you who don't know, super crash course here. Exposures are going to be the anxiety-provoking situations or challenging situations um, or assignments that you and a therapist work on together that you go out of your way to do to deliberately kind of experience the anxiety. Um, and the response prevention is where you resist or reduce doing the rituals or compulsions or safety behaviors that you would normally do to make yourself feel better. Um, and mental compulsions fit this model the exact same way. So there's not like one treatment for 
mental compulsions and another uh, way of making the recipe for physical, like it's all the same. So you obviously need to be a little bit creative. You obviously need to take into account um, individual differences and do those functional analyses like we've talked about. Um, But mental compulsions fit the model the same way. So there's really not a huge um, discrepancy there as far as how we kind of ultimately approach things. So how do we go about preventing these rituals and, and not engaging with them? So ritual prevention with mental compulsions is absolutely key. It's critical. Um, you also really want to make sure that your mental compulsions aren't compensating for one another. So really want to make sure, for instance, that, okay, I can't ask my husband for reassurance now, so I'm just going to tell myself everything will be fine. Um, want to really make sure, oh, okay, my therapist told me that I can't give myself reassurance anymore, so I'm just going to distract while I'm in the middle of this exposure. That's not okay. Um, The only way out is through. And so as long as we avoid that, you're going to spin your wheels and just get frustrated. So ritual prevention and not engaging with the thoughts. So practicing non-engagement strategies are all about accepting the thoughts, allowing them to be there. Um, And a lot of times people ask me like, well, what do I do? If I'm not doing a ritual, what do I do? And I always say, sitting with uncertainty is something you allow. It's not something that you do. Um, And there's another really great podcast episode that I recorded several episodes ago. I think it's about like, what do I do during exposures or something? And it's all about that. It's all about that question of like, okay, I'm not doing my ritual. So what should I be doing instead? And it's actually it's all there. Go back and listen to the episode. It's great. One of my favorites. Um, So we actually, as far as ritual prevention goes, want you to lean into the thoughts. We want you to welcome them. So egg it on. Say, OCD, give me all you got. Um, You can roll with the thoughts, right? So um, when I was really struggling with postpartum OCD, I always had this doubt that I was so sleep deprived that maybe I actually left my son somewhere and I forgot and I was hallucinating that he was right in front of me. Um, Even though I knew he was right in front of me and I knew I wasn't that sleep deprived, I still had that doubt. Well, what if, what if I'm that sleep deprived that I'm going crazy as much as I don't like that word, that was what came to my mind. And so through my own exposure work, I had to say, yep, it's, yep, I'm the kind of mom who would absolutely leave a, a child at the store. I am pretty forgetful. I am, and talk about sleep deprivation. Oh my gosh, I've never been so tired in my life. It's, I probably forgot everything at the store. My wallet, my kid, whatever. I'm not even here right now. Um, So leaning into the thoughts and welcoming them, that can definitely, uh, it's not going to feel great at first, obviously. It's not going to feel real, but um, eventually it will feel more authentic as you get used to it. Um, So I would also encourage you all to say things like maybe, I don't know. Uh, I'm not answering that question. I see OCD. I see what you're trying to do. I'm not answering that question. I'm not responding to that. I'm moving on. Um, Saying things like sitting with uncertainty is hard. Um, And notice here I'm not being super specific about the content because if you've listened to previous podcasts of mine, you know I don't think that OCD has all that much to do with the content. I know that superficially how it comes up for you as far as contamination or checking or harm or sexual intrusive thoughts or whatever. Um, But at the end of the day, it's not actually all about that. So the more that you can during exposures and with response prevention, just kind of sit with that generic underlying sense of uncertainty in general, not about content specific uncertainty, the better off you're going to be. 
And so ultimately, I want you guys to act as if you didn't have that intrusive experience. I want you to continue with your day as you planned, acting as though you're not missing a beat because we want OCD and your brain to get the message that we're not missing a beat for this. This means nothing. And it's not going to feel like it means nothing, but you have to act as though it means nothing. So if someone out there is finding it too hard to resist completely, which I totally get, and I've worked with some of the most debilitating cases of OCD in the whole entire world. So I have definitely run into this um, and I've been there myself. So if you're finding that it's just too hard to resist completely, you have some options. Um, Resisting your ritual is still with some exceptions, probably the best way to go and going to be the therapeutic recommendation. Um, But if you can't, and if it's just way too hard and it's backfiring, um, you could reduce, you could postpone, and you could undo rituals, right? So reducing rituals would be like, um, I usually say this prayer 15 times, I'm only going to say it once, um, or I'm only going to say it two times. Uh, the, The benefit of that is that it's not as fulfilling So it's kind of like my son wanting a huge T-Rex toy at Target. If I'm trying to break him of his habit of getting toys every time we're at Target, honey, you can can get a small toy, but we're not going to get the $50 T-Rex toy. Maybe we get him like a $3 blind bag or something like that. So it's still not super helpful in the long term because it still helps to establish and further like solidify that association, but it's not as fulfilling to the OCD as say that whole 15 out of 15 um, prayer ritual would be. The problem with reducing rituals is that it could backfire because is OCD really ever satisfied, right? So keep that in mind. If you allow yourself an inch, your OCD might take a mile. So just keep that in mind um, and, and kind of strategize ahead of time. You could also postpone. So setting a timer for 10 minutes, trying to sit with your anxiety and move on with your day until then. You know, if I'm still anxious about this in 30 minutes, then I'll, this is my plan. As opposed to just, yep, immediately I'm anxious. I'm urgent. Red flags, signals going off. Boom, boom, boom. I'm going to ritualize. It's kind of like giving your dog a bone as soon as he sits. It's obviously super reinforcing, right? So that's what happens when you give into a ritual when you are anxious. You are are creating a very strong association. Now, would we want to train a dog to sit and then give him a bone 30 minutes later? No, he's going to have a hard time learning that information. And that's what we want when it comes to your OCD recovery. We want that lapse of time in between the anxiety and the ritual so your brain starts to unlearn that those two things are uh, associated. And who knows, by the time that you postponed it for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe life has gone on and you have realized that this is not something that you needed to do in the first place. Um, Then the last kind of strategy that you have here is to undo rituals. So this is not... By any means, don't use this as kind of permission um, to do a ritual because, oh, I'll just do this ritual and then I'll undo it. Not doing yourself any favors if you do that. Um, But if you've already kind of caught yourself and you've already done it, you can reintroduce uncertainty somehow after the fact. So um, let's say that you uh, told yourself something reassuring like, oh, cool, good thing. Uh, Good thing. uh, Let me think of an example. Oh, my mom, uh, I was, I, I had that thought, that intrusive thought that I hit someone while I was running, but my mom's in the back seat. So, and she didn't seem alarmed. Um, 
okay, cool. Maybe that's like that mental ritual of that self-assurance that made me feel better. Oh man, I didn't want to actually give into that ritual. How do I undo that? You could reintroduce uncertainty somehow after the fact. So, well, maybe she wasn't paying attention. Oh, you know, it's not going to be a hundred percent anxiety provoking again, but even if we can brush off some of the usefulness of that ritual, it's gonna, it's gonna help us out. So, um, I have some other tips and tricks. I, I'm actually, I'm thinking that we need a third episode, you guys. I'm thinking that we need a third episode here. So come back for the third episode. I have some other things that I would like to share with you all. We'll do some case examples potentially, um, kind of how, uh, let's see, we'll, we'll talk about Ken um, struggling with sexual orientation OCD, and then we'll talk about Sarah, who is developing fears of schizophrenia and fears of developing other psychotic disorders. So we'll talk about some case examples in the third episode, um, and then we'll talk about some other tips and tricks for recovery uh, and get you guys going on some some strategies to even further reduce these tricky behaviors. So thank you guys so much for listening. I will see you back for the third episode. And in the meanwhile, keep doing all those hard things. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.